Have you ever uh, been a part, worked on a group project, either at school or work? It's the worst. It's the worst thing that there is. I mean, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, you either are, are disappointed or you feel like you're not pulling the weight on the team. Just there's so many aspects that go into group projects. And there are seriously very few things that I like less than group projects. I remember doing a group project in college and the PowerPoint was split up into three different sections. Let's just say the entire team's grades suffered because of a weak link in the chain. There was absolutely no unity. It, it felt like the parts seemed to be prepared separately, which they were, and thrown together into one PowerPoint, which they were, but it seemed like some members didn't care at all about the project, and as a result, they did nothing. It was awful. And that's the great evil of group projects. They don't come together well at all. It reminds me also of a sports example. Just this last week, some of the best individual NBA players in the world put together what was really coined in the early 90s of a dream team to play in the Olympics. Well, some of the best NBA players in the world play for the United States. Well, the United States was facing off in a pre-Olympic exhibition against Nigeria. Nigeria only has three backup NBA players on their entire roster. Well, Nigeria ended up beating USA in that exhibition. The individual talent on, the team, on Team USA did not translate to a unified team. Nigeria looked way more like a unified team. Sadly, this doesn't just happen in group projects and on dream teams. This exact scenario, this exact coming together and not being unified happens within the church. And it's the focus of our passage this morning. The problem in the church in Corinth is one that so often plagues our modern day church today. And we need to assess whether it is FBA in our hearts, in our minds. We need to go to scripture and see if this is us. We meet together and it results in more division than unity. We focus on the individual more than the body of Christ. We do damage to the church that we do not even realize we're doing. Or maybe it's even more tragic than that. Maybe we do realize it and we just don't care. Paul confronts us head on in 1 Corinthians 11 that the church cannot be a giant failed group project. The focus of our passage this morning is coming together as the church. Paul uses this phrase, come together, five times in verses 17 through 34. So here's the question that we're going to answer today. What does it mean for us, what does it mean for us, FBA, First Baptist Alcoa, to come together as the church? And I want to look at three reasons we come together as the church from this passage. Three reasons we come together as the church. 
And let me say at the outset, believers, listen, let me say at the outset, we must do serious heart evaluation to assess if this is our desire when we come together as the church. And if it isn't, if the conclusion we reach if this, it, that this isn't us, this isn't the reason we meet, we must repent and we must pursue this. That's the call of scripture. So three reasons we come together as the church. First, we come together to deny self and display unity. We come together to deny self and display unity. Paul starts, look at verse 17. Paul starts by saying in the instructions he is about to give that he can't even commend the church as he previously did in verse two. If you look back at verse two of chapter 11, you'll see Paul commend this church. For, for adhering to teaching that he has given them. But here he says that he can't even commend them like he did in verse two. And he says something heartbreaking, something that should shatter these believers in their relationship with, with Christ and their relationship with one another. He says when the Corinthian church is coming together, they are more divided than when they are apart. Coming together by very definition should be something that is unifying. But here it's only seen as divisive. Paul in no way desires to tell the assembly not to assemble. That's not what he's saying. The church exists to gather together, all ages, all classes, all races, unifying together to worship God. And here we read that something that is so central to who the church is, gathering together as, as all ages, all races, all demographics, everything, something that is so central to who we are, we read, Paul can't even, can't even commend this church for it. Because when they come together, it only breaks down their unity. It only creates more brokenness. Paul cannot commend, and we must never commend. We must not be in the habit of commending, gathering together that is more focused on the individual than it is the body. We cannot commend gathering together that looks nothing like the gospel. Church, may this never be true of us, but how often is it? We focus on this life we look in a mirror and say, this is who it's all about. We focus on this life rather than the life of the church. We focus on this body rather than the body of Christ. No, we must come together to do the opposite. We come together to deny self and display unity. Look at verses 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The beginning of this issue, the beginning of the whole issue that Paul is bringing, the foundation of this church is starting from something wrong. When they come together, it doesn't look like coming together. It looks like a bunch of individuals gathering in close proximity physically to one another, but they still live as individuals. And Paul understands, he says in verses 18 and 19, he understands that there must be divisions, distinctions among you that are healthy. 
He understands proper distinctions within the church. There must be the ability to look around this body of Christ and see how the spirit is working in the individual's lives. There must be the ability to look around and see humility, gentleness, godliness in people that sets them apart and that we are able to say, that's Christ in you. But that's not the division Paul is discussing within the Corinthian church that they are unhealthy. Yes, within any healthy church, there, there are divisions, there are elders, there are deacons, there are mature believers, there are immature believers who are seeking to grow in their relationship with Christ. Yes, these distinctions are absolutely necessary. It isn't that we love one and not the other. Even unbelievers within the church, we do not treat them as believers. We don't treat them as members, but we love them with the gospel. We are regularly praying for them that they know Christ. We're praying that they know the truth of him as the perfect sacrifice for sin and that they turn to saving faith in him. Jesus showed us how to do this in his earthly ministry. Jesus would perform miracles. And scripture says, scripture is clear that many people said they believed from these miracles. But Jesus continually, over and over again, shows this belief was not genuine from most. They only claimed to believe because of what they saw. But as soon as Jesus' teaching got hard or opposition came, they showed their lack of true saving faith. He knew the true believers, yes, because he is fully God. But we look and we see true belief based on fruit. We see Christ in one another. We see growth in believers. We see walking in maturity. And something will get to the end. We also see sin. And we need to be quick to restore it. We need to be quick to be gentle in in bringing up repentance to other believers. And we need to be quick to evangelize, witness to those who do not know him. There will be distinctions within the church when seeing the fruit of true belief in the finished work of Christ. The Lord's Supper that is central to this passage, that's about to be discussed in this passage, is for believers. That's a necessary distinction. But the divisions that were happening in this church were not based on anything biblical. They were not what we've talked about. No, they were more based on who was rich and who was poor. Who who were the haves and who were the have-nots. This is where unity went out the window. Verses 20 through 22 say, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Do we see the extreme self-focus in this? They might call what they are eating the Lord's Supper, but it is not the Lord's Supper. They come as individuals. They approach the table in a self-seeking way. One commentator says the early church developed special fellowship meals that came to be called love feast and that usually were closed with the observance of the Lord's Supper. These were congregational meals stressing fellowship, affection, and mutual caring among the believers. 
The emphasis on oneness led very readily into a celebration of the unifying accomplishment of the Savior on the cross. Get what, Paul is, get what this commentator is saying, get what Paul is saying. The purpose of these meals was to lead into what the Lord's Supper was supposed to be. The Lord's Supper was supposed to be something that was unifying before believers because they were talking about the unity offered in Christ, the restoration offered in Christ. And so these meals were supposed to be this lead in expressing their unity as a church, not as individuals, as the body of Christ. They were coming together to fellowship together to promote unity, leading into approaching the table, approaching the Lord's Supper, approaching the bread and the cup, which is expressing their gospel unity. How could this be anything but unifying? But what Paul is saying is they were anything but loving fellowship. They were anything but showing fellowship, affection, mutual care. They were centered instead on selfishness. These meals leading into the Lord's Supper ended up as abuses of the Lord's Supper. They mocked the Lord's Supper. You can't call it a fellowship meal. And you definitely can't classify it as something that is connected to the Lord's Supper when it is characterized by such division. There's no unity. They're eating like they would at home for their own satisfaction. I can't tell you the number of days that I'm like sitting on the couch working or I'm playing with the boys and I'm like, pantry's right there. It's a dangerous game, but the pantry's right there. This is what they're doing. They're acting like this is their pantry at home. They do it completely independent of everyone else. They eat to get their fill. They put themselves ahead of the rest of the church. They remove the point of approaching the table. And we do this. Instead of Christ being the focus of his supper, I become the focus. Instead of doing things in remembrance of Jesus, we give no thought to Christ at all when we skew it to our, our own worship. This is present in Corinth. And if we are not careful, it's present in us. All thought is wrapped up in self. No thought is given to the body of Christ. Others go hungry while we eat more than enough. One is denied what they need because one is a selfish glutton. Some people in the church are wanting because everyone comes as individuals, only loving self and thus dividing the church. It is abuse of the church after abuse of the church for the sake of self. There is so little care given to the Lord's Supper and what the bread and the cup represent. And that means it's not only abuse of the church. That means it's not only abuse of food and drink. It's not just gluttony. It's abusing one of the very things Christ commanded his church to do. When we abuse the Lord's Supper and do not treat it as an act of worship, we are neglecting and denying everything Christ said it should be. So don't take this as, hey, you're doing something that Corey frowns on. No, I do it too. I take a command from Christ. 
and I live as though it's insignificant. I deny what everything Christ said it should be. We try to make the Lord's Supper our supper when we are at the center. No, we must deny self and love the unity that the Lord's Supper promotes. Paul's confrontation of the abuse of the Lord's Supper, it it doesn't come off like a lot of his instruction has in in the rest of this chapter and in the past chapters. It can come off as, as harsh. It does not come off as gentle. And by our modern day standards, this isn't gentle. Paul knows this church. He knows them well, and he's disgusted by their sin. But Paul comes to them. He knows he is coming to them as a fellow sinner. But he also knows that they need direct confrontation of their complete self-centeredness. They come to the church, they approach the table, and it's all self-worship. There's no self-sacrifice. So here's the question. Do you understand the table? Do you understand what this Lord's Supper is? And this is Paul's question to them. Do you understand? Because if you did, this wouldn't be happening. They approach the table leisurely as if they were eating at their homes. No, he says, this table is distinct. Your gluttony has no place, no standing at all when it comes to this table. Paul's second rhetorical question in verse 22 gets right to the heart of these people. And think about this question in verse 22. Think about this question in direct correlation to what Christ said the greatest commandments are. Look at this. Do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How you despise his church. Jesus says, worship God. And Paul says, do you not despise the church of God? Love others as you love yourself. No, you're humiliating them. Paul says you were hating the church, Corinthians. You were despising the gathering. You view it with disdain outwardly, and it's in your heart. You tear down, you belittle, you hurt others for your own glory. Your focus is 100% inward. You hate God's church and its members. You sacrifice a proper view of what Christ sacrificed himself for, the church, in order to to never sacrifice your own sinful love of self. As a result, your church dies, dies while you live for self. Instead of denying self, you deny the church. Instead of displaying unity, division is on full display. Listen, church, if this is my heart, if this is your heart, if this is us, we must repent and love Jesus and his church. We must call sin the disgusting, life-draining thing that it is. And the church is the last place it should be so prevalent. The church is full of sinners, yes, but we are not unrepentant sinners. The church cannot and will not be defined by a hatred of the assembly due to a supreme love of self. We come together to deny self and to display gospel unity. 
Listen, believers, how do you, how do you need to deny self today for the sake of the unity of this church? Make it personal. How do you need to deny your own self today for the sake of FBA? First, we come together to deny self and display unity. Second, we come together to remember and proclaim Christ crucified. We come to remember and to proclaim Christ crucified. In verse 23, Paul is clear that his teaching is straight from the Lord. He teaches how serious and how valuable the Lord's Supper is. The authority with which Paul taught on the Lord's Supper points to the seriousness of the approach one must have for the table. On the night before Jesus was crucified, the night he was betrayed, Jesus sat to eat with the twelve. Jesus taught through the bread and the cup what was about to happen and, and that we must remember his sacrifice. Jesus, as fully God, gives thanks to the Father to start out this meal and shows us proper alignment. It's all about the will, will of the Father. No, this isn't a case of praying before meals. This is a case for prayer. This is a case for every day. Are we daily stopping to align ourselves and to give thanks where all thanks is due? Verse 24, Jesus then broke bread to symbolize his body that was about to be broken, that was about to be ripped, that was about to be torn for his body, the church. So listen, believers, we approach partaking this bread as his body, the church, to remember the body that was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see that? We approach as the body of Christ, the church, to remember the body that was crushed for our iniquities. This is an act of worship that we supremely focus on the Lord of glory who took on flesh to have that flesh bruised, beaten, ripped apart as the perfect sacrifice for sin. We break bread not only, not only because Jesus broke bread and told us to. We break bread because the bread of life was broken so that we might know God. So as his church, as those who know him, we break bread to remember and proclaim loudly the sacrifice of Christ as abundantly enough to soothe the perfectly just wrath of God. John Piper says, the Lord's Supper is a stark reminder, time after time, that Christianity is not new age spirituality, is not getting in touch with your inner being, it is not mysticism, it is rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived. He had a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from the wrath of God. That happened once and for all in history. We must remember we must remember what we are celebrating. When we approach the table, we must remember what we are proclaiming and what we are remembering. If anything, it's a denial of self. And doesn't remembering have such a valuable place in our lives? We have minds that allow us to remember the smallest of memories with people we love. We get to remember wedding days, births, vacations, we get to remember these things and store them away. 
but remembering has an infinitely more valuable place in the believer's life. Believer, you are called to a much deeper remembering. And a lot of times, it's the we, me included, it's the we live under the deadly reality of spiritual dementia. We so often approach the Lord's Supper, the table, and forget what it represents. We just see it as ritual. We forget about the evil of our sin. We forget about biblical confession. We forget that our sin is so heinous, it required the death of Jesus. We forget all glory is his, and yet he humbled himself to the fullest extent so we could be in his glorious presence. We forget. Spurgeon says, forget him who never forgot us. Forget him who poured his blood forth for, your, for our sins. Forget him who loved us even to death. Can it be possible? Yes, it is not only possible, but conscience confesses that it is too sadly a fault of all of us that we can remember anything except Christ. The object with which we should make the monarch of our hearts is the very thing we are most inclined to forget. We forget Christ because regenerate persons as we really are, still corruption and death remain even in the regenerate. We forget him because we carry about with us the old Adam of sin and death. If we were purely newborn creatures, we should never forget the name of him whom we love. If we were entirely regenerated beings, we should sit down and meditate on all our Savior did and suffered, all he is, all he has gloriously promised to perform, and never would our roving affection stray, but centered, nailed, fixed, eternally to one object, we should continually contemplate the death and sufferings of our Lord. Church, simply we must remember Christ crucified. In the same way, in verse 25, Jesus took the cup to represent the propitiation he was about to become. His blood, his sacrifice, ushers in a new covenant of grace. You are no longer under law, but under grace, Romans 6, 14. Yes, we take the cup to remember the cup of God's wrath being poured out on Christ who became sin for us. But listen, we also take the cup to remember God's overflowing cup of grace that is clearly on full display in providing of himself as the perfect wrath-atoning sacrifice for sin. We drink to remember his blood spilled as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is for remembering, and verse 26, it is for proclaiming Christ crucified. We do not partake, partake in the Lord's Supper to proclaim our own selfish motives. We do not come together to proclaim disunity in the body of Christ. No, you are proclaiming unity in the body of Christ through every member together, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. You are together, together, all of us, unified believers, as First Baptist Alcoa, we come together proclaiming that sin brings death and that we must be putting our sin to death because Christ was put to death so that you could have life. We proclaim in the Lord's Supper what Paul has told Corinth since the very beginning of the book, since the first chapter. We do it to proclaim Christ crucified. 
So we come together to deny self and display unity. We come together to remember and to proclaim Christ crucified. Lastly, we come together to prepare and examine our hearts. To prepare and examine our hearts. Let's read verse 27 through 34 again. Whoever therefore eats, this bre- eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul says, because of the weight and the purpose of the Lord's Supper, anyone who is careless in approaching the table, thinking of self instead of Christ, is guilty. This is one of those statements in scripture that concerns us, that worries us, because we think about the grace of God and then we think about the statement that we are guilty of approaching the table in an unworthy manner and we feel those two things counter one another. But we must think biblically about this. Think about sin. We have forsaken true worship and worshiped creature rather than creator. By grace, God restored proper worship through the death and resurrection of his son. We practice the Lord's Supper as an act of worship by remembering the death and resurrection of his son. And we approach this table in an unworthy manner when we worship creature rather than creator. When we have a facade of a relationship with Christ in his church, when we are putting on the mask of unity and yet our heart is full of divisiveness, when we are unrepentant and clinging to death instead of life offered in Christ, of course we are guilty. But what Paul says to the believer is what he said in Romans and he said throughout there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the believer, instead of that guilt, examines himself or herself before approaching the table. Self-examination is vital to the health of the believer and the health of the church. Don't think it's just about the individual. It's about this body of believers In order to approach the table properly, we must humble ourselves. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying, I only worship self, we look in the mirror of God's word, James calls it, and do we do serious self-examination? The table is a place of correct focus. And so Paul is saying, get your focus correct. Align your heart, align your eyes, set your eyes on Christ instead of self. If you see self, all you're going to see is the guilt because that's what you are. You're worshiping self who is never worthy of the worship. And 
And that the table is a place of correct focus doesn't mean we just do self-examination. It means we need to open the door for other believers to confront us in our sin. We fail to welcome other believers stepping into our lives uncomfortably, and we tend to make it more uncomfortable for them to step in our lives when we make excuses for our sin, when we get defensive when they bring it to us, when we call them harsh for gently stepping alongside of us and trying to walk with us to restore us. Listen, believer, I urge you, I urge you to examine yourself and allow other members of the body of Christ to know you well enough, to know your life well enough, to know your heart well enough to examine you. To say, here's here's how I can restore you to a proper focus of Christ when your focus is self. All of this is to promote unity This is all so that you are ready to approach the table together in an act of wonderful, pure worship to our God. Discerning oneself, discerning one's heart, one's motives is necessary before approaching the table. The judgment that Jesus faced in becoming sin for us is the judgment still faced by every unbeliever. They still face the perfect wrath of God against sin. And we must discern our own hearts to know if we are truly following Christ. Listen, I say this a lot to the students, but being born into a Christian household doesn't save you. Being born into the Bible belt doesn't save you. And for us, I think it's, it's more advanced things than that. Voting Republican doesn't save you. It doesn't. You know what saves you? The finished work of Christ. That's it. Christ finished work on the cross. Faith in his finished work. So let me ask you this. Why would anyone who doesn't have true saving faith in the finished work of Christ, anyone who doesn't know him, why would they approach the table meant for remembering what Christ has done? They don't believe in his sacrifice. They don't believe in the finished work of Christ. So we, as the body of Christ, we must prepare and examine our hearts because as the body of Christ, it is detrimental to the entire body when one part is self-serving. Just one part. When we do not discern before approaching the table, the church becomes weak, sick, and may even die. It's like a ship even going one degree off of its route. The effects of that could be detrimental. They could run into a storm. They could run aground. Lives are at stake. If we are even one degree off as a church, it could be detrimental to us as the body of Christ. If we truly and rightly discern ourselves and our motives, we will will approach the table rightly. If we are doing real self-evaluation, we serve Christ and his church through the table. We don't serve ourselves. True self-examination takes Christ-like humility. God shows grace, even in disciplining us, 
It's not often that we put these two together, but God shows grace even in disciplining us. We are disciplined in hopes of restoring ourselves to a proper view of the table and restoring us to be more like Christ. Do you see how discipline is full of grace because it's giving us the correct focus? Discipline is full of grace because it shows us life when we're focused on death. For the believer, discipline never leads to condemnation. That's what Paul says. Instead, discipline is a reminder of our sin. It's a reminder of the act of repentance. It's a reminder of the sacrifice of our Savior. It is a reminder that we will not face death because Christ died in our place. The world doesn't understand this aspect of discipline. And as a result, the world despises discipline. But we as believers... Believers, we take the Lord's Supper as an act of unity. It's not an act of individual worship alone. We come together, unified as the body of Christ, to remember the sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's Supper proclaims our gospel unity. The Lord's Supper is not about satisfying the stomach, but the heart. It is not about satisfying the individual, but the body of Christ. It's not about the here and the now. It's about eternity. When we view the table in this way, it will be a beautiful place of unity, not division. Believer, we come together to deny ourselves, to display unity, to remember and proclaim Christ crucified, to prepare and examine our hearts. This is what the table must represent. And if it doesn't, we must align ourselves. We must focus. It's such a gift. Even though we're not doing it today, it's such a gift that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That in our sin, as those who should remain dead to sin, never should be alive in Christ. It's amazing, and it's such a grace, a a gracious gift that we can approach the table and say, we are remembering and proclaiming the reality of Christ crucified on our behalf. What a gift that is. It should be a message to the unbelieving world. Are we displaying unity in that? If you are not a believer and you are in this room and do not know Christ, you do not know his finished work on the the cross, please come and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. I'll stay as long as I need to, to talk to you about why we remember and proclaim Christ crucified for our sin believers, but this is our charge that when we approach the table, we don't approach it in an unworthy manner. We focus. We are remembering Christ atoning for our sin. We are remembering that he was the propitiation, the wrath atoning sacrifice that we could never be. Let's pray.